This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. A couple weeks ago, I was a guest in the Ari Lewis show over at Israel Sports News Radio. And I thought the program covered a lot of really interesting topics that we often touch on here at the Next Stage. Ari Lewis happens to be a really great interviewer and knows how to ask the kind of questions that elicit really developed answers. So I decided to play a recording of that interview here as part of our program. I'd also like to let listeners know that I plan to be in the U.S. for a couple weeks, and if anyone's interested in organizing an event in your community, you should contact us by going to visionmag.org and clicking contact on the menu bar up top. You can also check out the show notes for this episode over at visionmag.org backslash the next stage 5A. And now, without further ado, here's the recording of my interview on The Ari Lewis Show. Welcome to another episode of the Ari Lewis Show here on Israel Sports and News Radio. We're also going to upload uh, this episode to YouTube uh, on the Nation of Israel YouTube page if YouTube allows that. Hopefully they will. And we'll also post this episode on Rumble. So we're excited to have the audience aboard and watch this episode. Uh, tonight's guest is a lecturer at Mahon Meir. He's also the founder of Vision. It's a pleasure to have on the program Yehuda Cohen. Thank you for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. So I attended a organization... Uh, lecture slash uh, group with you last week, a discussion mm-hmm. group, concept of Galut, how should we approach Galut since we're in Israel, and how should we approach some of our customs. Tisha of course, is a couple of days away. So first aspect I want to discuss is last names, because if you look at Tanakh, people generally did not have last names. Usually mm-hmm. it was Ben of at some mm-hmm. point. And now we have last names, and a lot of last names have uh, a Galut influence, Christian, Muslim, etc. I know you change your last name. I keep my last name, at least as of now. I want you to talk about the importance of last names and how there was an influence with the Galut, and should we do things differently now or should we not, etc. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, I don't want anyone to feel pressured to, you know, t- towards any behavior one way or the other. I, I'm just one. I think it's important when we have this uh, post-colonial conversation to acknowledge what happened to us, what changed, and then decide independently what we want to change back, if at all. I think that's important. Uh, So, you know, historically, we were known, we had names, like our, sometimes two or three names, but we had names. And then we were identified as either son of our father, or from a place that we came from. Now, usually if we were no longer in that place, like for example, um, you know, you, you have people sometimes in our history whose names change based on where they are geographically. Um, but you have a guy, na- a, a guy from Beit El who moves to Jerusalem would be known as Beit HaEli, right? Mm. guy from Jerusalem who moves to, I don't know, Akko would be Yushalmi, if, if that's how he's being identified. Um, you know, on my mountain, I'm the only Kohen. So mm. I'm HaKohen. Right, the Kohen. My wife, uh, when she married me, did not become Ha Kohen, because she's not a Kohen. She her Tudat Zehud says Eshet Kohen, hmm. right? Wife of Kohen, and uh, and you know at least one of my daughters in school is called Bat Kohen, because she's not a Kohen. And so yeah, so uh, but but basically it was either your like what you did. Your, 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 your function in society. It could be yeah. profession. It could be, I don't know if being a Kohen is my profession, but it's definitely what I contribute to where I live. You know, I, I, I'm the only one doing Birkat Kohenim on the mountain. Hmm. So I'm the Kohen of the mountain. Uh, so I'm Ha Kohen. Uh, but if I were a scribe, they might call me Ha Sofer, right? Um, Ezra the scribe is known as Ezra the scribe, right? right. So. But we didn't have, you know, there were no like Goldbergs. Right. Yeah. Although a lot of those names, the, even though those names were imposed on us for European governments to be able to keep track of populations better, the whole concept of family names, the way we understand them today, uh, especially in the Western world, uh, began when European governments were just trying to have a sense of their own populations. Um, we did, at that point, take names that actually were very relevant to, who, like, to what we did in society or who we were, etc., that Goldberg could be from someone who worked in gold? Perhaps, Silver right. Silversmith, that kind of thing. Right, right, right. So, so, people di- so people took names that were relevant in the way that historically our names were, were relevant. You know, Jacob's son might be son of Yaakov, Ben Yaakov, hmm. right? Uh, Jacob's son, uh, etc. Uh, but today, the way last names function, are, it's not exactly our name structure. Like, 
I made the choice to return to a Hebrew name structure. Um, I don't want there to be any uh, distinction between my name in my quote-unquote real life and my name when I'm called up to the Torah for an Aliyah. Mm. Like, I want the same name, you know, in both ways. And so, you know, so I would introduce myself as my name, you know, in some cases, son of my father's name and Hakohen. Because that's the way I'm called up. That's who I really am. And, uh, and I think that's a way to... It, it's, a, it's a way to live holistically, uh, holistic Jewish lives. You know, it's also interesting when you look at names as far as literature, even mm -hmm. secular literature, that uh, Shakespeare wrote a book called Othello. Mm -hmm. There's a character named Michael Cassio. And I remember thinking, that's interesting, he has a last name, because the other characters didn't. Mm -hmm. And we were taught in school, well, he was upper class, and that's why he got a last name. Was that part of European society, that, they, that people had these last names to show that they were more distinguished, and then the Jews were influenced, perhaps, in that respect, to seem more distinguished to have a last name? Maybe, I don't know. I, I never read Othello, and I had never no. heard that before. I didn't know that it started with the um, upper classes of society. That was a theory. It's right. interesting, like, for example, the name Jessica, mm -hmm. which uh, was apparently invented by Shakespeare, but he eventually, apparently, got it from Tanakh. Iska. Iska. So, right. Sorry, Menu. Right. right. So it's interesting. A lot of these names, if you look throughout literature, Shakespeare, all these brilliant... Uh, Books, well, maybe a little anti-Semitic, but they usually have some type of Jewish origin, if you check mm -hmm. it out. Mm -hmm. Okay, so basically the part of the idea is the Hebraized concept. A lot of the prime ministers did that. Golda Meir is Meyerson, mm -hmm. and then David Ben-Gurion was David Green. Well, sort of, okay. meaning what they did was they Hebraized their name but maintained a Western name structure. Okay. What, I'm, what I did, I'm not arguing for it, you don't have to do it. What I did was I decided to Hebraize not just my name but my name structure. Okay. As an act of decolonization. Okay. Now, you know, that works for me. I like it. But if somebody else doesn't want to do it, that's okay. Okay, so it's important to make that distinction. Because the, mm -hmm. the like, uh, show in Paris, Persky, that is not, that's Hebraized as far as taking a Western name, make it sound more Hebrew. Hebrew. Right. Okay. And you, what you're uh, talking about, what you did is more of a concept. Change the actual structure of it. Okay. And I think that's a good way to look at the state of Israel. Okay. Because it's not just, we don't just want to have like a Western nation state, but in Hebrew. We want the structure, we don't want the skin of the state of Israel to be Jewish. We want the skeleton and the organs to be Jewish. We want to actually change the structure of the state in such a way that it expresses our people's values and identity and its policies and institutions. And I'm of the belief that if we're able to do that, then we won't have these kind of, what I would consider, shallow fights over the skin. And I think there'd be actually, if we can make the um, structures of the state more expressive of our identity, I think there'd be a lot more room for even people who are not us. Because I think then we can think about minority rights, not in the Western sense, but actually formulate what minority rights might look like from a Jewish perspective and then have a, a model that, in my opinion, would probably be superior and more, um, more acceptable to non-Jews in our society than the Western concept of minority rights. Okay, so that's part of the interesting distinction people get that, mm -hmm. uh, figure that out, concept of taking a Western name, make it sound mm -hmm. Jewish or Israeli or Hebrew, etc. Mm -hmm. But that's not the, the same as what he did. Another uh, thing we talked about last week, found an interesting concept where you mentioned this analogy of, let's say, some people broke into a family's house, God forbid, and mm -hmm. They kept him captive for, let's say, five years. And let's say there was a child from 12 to 17, mm -hmm. and they made uh, the, uh, her listen to music, certain type of music, eat certain type of food. Now, when that's done... And, and rearrange the furniture. Rearrange the furniture, right? right? So uh, that really struck a chord with me, not that I was, was held captive in that sense, but a lot of the music I like as a kid, nostalgia-wise, when mm -hmm. I actually listen to it, I'm like... I don't like these lyrics of what they mean. This is disgusting. Mm. But it reminds me of, of a time of, of innocence. Sure. So that's something that is, I don't know if people are aware of that or not. Uh, I wonder if you could expand more on that concept of what can we do with that? Like, if I like a certain song and it makes me happy, do I have to get rid of it? Or should I, you know? Uh, right. So I, I, maybe I'll just repeat the analogy for your viewers. Yes. Because I, I was just trying to explain how very simply, how the post-colonial conversation should look. Okay. And I gave the example, as, as you, you were listening very well, um, of you know people invade your house, not your house, somebody's house, when they're 12 years old, 
and they rearrange the furniture, and they force a certain kind of cuisine, let's just say vegan cuisine for argument's right. sake, and they force the family to listen to a certain kind of music, and after five years the family decides to revolt, and now this 12-year-old is 17. And after they revolt and they win against these you know, uh, invaders who had been occupying their home for five years, it's not enough to free their home from the invaders, which is basically what Israel did in 1948, meaning we, f we forced the British to leave. And the British, I, I would look at the British as an extension of the Roman Empire that had destroyed our civilization 2,000 years earlier. But so once, the, you know, once the British are gone and we have political independence once again, it's not enough to just take down their flag and put our flag on their system, which is essentially what David Ben-Gurion did. Mm. What we need to do is actually have a conversation. So if we're going back to the analogy of this family, they have to ask, well, one part of the conversation is, where did the furniture used to be? That's one part of the conversation. And the second part is, do we want to put it back? Or maybe partially, meaning it's possible that you could say, well, even though they were the oppressor and even though we didn't want them here, they really understood interior decorating better than we did. And, and the same thing with the music. Like yeah. the music, as you said, the music might have been imposed on us by an oppressor, but at the same time, a 12-year-old going from 12 to 17 is having certain coming-of-age experiences that he or she might have nostalgia for and that music would trigger that nostalgia and therefore there's like a guilty pleasure of I want to hear these songs, even though it's the music of the oppressor. And, and that creates, of course, uh, an inner conflict for a lot of people. But I think it needs to be part of the conversation. Same thing with cuisine. Like a vegan cuisine might be really healthy, and uh, a person's body would adapt in five years to the vegan cuisine. But then once the occupier who's forcing that diet on us is gone, we might say, hey, wait a minute. We want to go back to eating the junk we were eating before. Mm. So these are all... So it, it's important to understand that when we're having this conversation over, over, you know, what is going to be the identity of our state, how do we actually um, return, tshuva, how do we actually return to being the nation that we're supposed to be, it's important to know we're not going backwards. We're not, it's not like some pre-colonial aspiration that we want to go, you know, be a, a replica of our ancestors before the Romans destroyed us, but in the 21st century. There are things that have changed in the last 2,000 years, and we have to understand that some things are going to be um, different. You know, we're just living in a radically different world than, you know, than those who were here during the Greco-Roman period, and... And we have to rebuild Hebrew civilization in the era we're living in now. Again, this is the Ari Lewis Show here on Israel Sports and News Radio. Hope everyone is enjoying this episode. I want to discuss this concept of certain things that we could go back to and certain things we can't. So uh, this is a few years ago. I work in archaeology a number of years. And when I first started, there's a course of Pasuk when Avraham Avinu is buying a cave for Sari Amenu, it's very hard Hebron, and the, the Torah talks about uh, Shekel, Ford Shekel. That, at the time, for some reason, I was thinking the way it was now, like mm. Ford coins. And then the archaeologist said, no, they didn't have coins with faces on them. You know, that was part of the oppression, to put faces on the coins, mm. or, you know, dictators and other people, etc. That was... Like, a, we didn't do that. We didn't put faces on we coins. We did not, yeah. It's not a Jewish thing to do that. What that was discussed in the Torah is a measurement of silver. Mm -hmm. And then when you go a little further, that they had, it was a basic barter system. Sheep made clothing, and donkeys were like the cars of the time, and they had other things to, to make their homes out of. So... That is that possible to go back to a barter system, or is that no? It's too late. It's over. No, I don't think we're going to go back to a barter system. I do like right now the economy, uh, the global economy is structured a certain way that I think is flawed. Maybe better than a lot of what's come before it. But I do believe that part of Israel's rebirth, part of the Jewish people coming back to life after two thousand years, is ultimately going to lead humanity into what I would call a post-capitalist world. Okay. Meaning that we can, even if we're going to make the argument that, that capitalism as a mode of production and exchange is better than anything that came before it, better than feudalism, better than slavery, um, still I think humanity can do better and we can create some kind of uh, economic model. I mean, that's one of the things I think we have to work on here, creating a uniquely Hebrew economy. Uh, certainly not one in which billionaires and corporations are able to buy politicians and control policies. 
You think that happens? <laughs> Maybe. Hopefully, hopefully people appreciate that uh, we're trying to express the truth and kind of uh, get away from that a bit. That, but the idea of going through a barter system would be, that's part of the reason that Abraham had the, the, such brachot, because mm-hmm. he was able to function in an independent way. Mm-hmm. He was relying on Shem. He was able to do business with people. It said that all his business partners, as I think Midrash, that they all succeeded except for Ephrod sold in the cave because he tried to cheat him, etc. Mm-hmm. So is there, was the Torah trying to hint there's a, a purity in a barter system? I mean, is that one it idea? It could be. I don't know. I mean, that's a good idea. Okay. All right. I, you know, I've never really thought about that. And, and I'm not sure a barter system can work today, but I'm open to new ideas. In regards to, let's say, things that we could try to go back to before mm-hmm. uh, we were kicked out, what would be some examples that we could change? Well, I, I think what we should be doing really is looking not at necessarily the exact structures or policies, although some of them might still be relevant, um, but the values they expressed. Okay. Meaning, for example, and this is a discussion, I don't claim to have the answer, we're coming up on a Shemitah year. Right. Right. So, generally the way Shemitah works today in the state of Israel is everybody becomes, not everybody, but let's probably us, um, a lot of people become very serious about what vegetables, what produce they do or don't buy, where it comes from, is it Heter Mechira, is it Otzer Bedin, right? Like, what, what vegetables am I going to buy during the Shemitah year? Um, but Shemitah is a lot bigger than that. Shemitah is also about... What represents too? Well, first of all, what about wiping out people's debts? Shouldn't, hmm. shouldn't there be a law in this country, that uh, anybody who's in minus gets their minus wiped out in the Shemitah year. Um, I mean, that's a conversation we should be having. Uh, I think you'd... By the way, if we were having these conversations, you know, I remember a couple years ago on uh, Yom Yerushalayim, a member of Knesset, uh, Betzalel Smotrich, got up at Merkaz and started talking about a halachic state, right? right? And people got very scared. People get very scared when you have that conversation, but one of the reasons people get very scared when you have that conversation is... Because what they're imagining is either a Jewish Iran or a giant Haredi community. Mm. And I think that if we want to uh, change that perception, we need to focus on the aspects of what the Torah has to say about creating a society that actually meet people's needs. So, so speaking about how Shemitah can potentially impact us on a socioeconomic level might get people a little curious about mm. what a halachic state could look like, or that banks shouldn't charge interest. You know, that might get people a little bit interested. Wait a minute, there might be something here. Mm. Uh, and then you start to have conversations about, well, wait, maybe we're afraid of this halachic state idea because the banks and, you know, other you know, powerful forces in this country don't want us to think in that direction. Mm. Uh, you know, like, for example, Shabbat is very much a class issue. You know, we have these public debates over whether or not uh, we should have public transportation or, or shopping centers open on Shabbat. But this whole conversation is coming from the perspective of those privileged enough to just get on a bus and go shopping. And nobody's talking about the person who's forced to drive the bus or work retail on the one day a week his children are home. Hmm. No, so I think we need to we need to really have these, and and I think by the way a lot of the um, the tech companies, the global tech companies that uh, essentially use the state of Israel as a sweatshop for R and D, uh, are very threatened by the idea of a society that kind of shuts down one day a week, that doesn't that doesn't tweet, that doesn't do any Google searches. I mean, we we're not thinking about how much money you know Google makes on every search. Um, like a, a, a society that just like doesn't do that like one day a week I think that's very threatening and, and there have been people I don't know if this is true there have been people who've suggested that it could be some of these tech companies are actually funding a lot of the like um, pol- political agitation for you know, opening up Shabbat you always said pollution said a politician I think it's a Freudian slip oh <laughs> uh, I said uh, the Political agitation, right, okay. T- towards actually um, like opening up Shabbat and making it like a regular day. Okay. I think that there there are people who have I, I haven't seen evidence for it, but there are people who have made the claim that some of the money for for uh, that um, advocacy is coming from tech companies who just don't like the idea 
of a, of a country shutting down. So I think one of the questions we'd have to ask, and I don't know the answer, uh, but it's definitely been suggested at our, you know, on our magazine, there have been, we have a magazine, visionmag.org, if anybody's interested, vision magazine, visionmag.org, it's in English. Um, there, you know, one of the writers there, uh, Michael Shepsis, has written a couple articles about uh, what Shemitah could potentially mean or what a Hebrew economy could potentially look like in the modern age. And one of the questions he asks, and it's a good question, is does all production shut down? Mm. Meaning, you know, in ancient times, when we first came into this land, our economy was very agriculturally based. And stopping all agricultural work was basically shutting down our economy for a year, right? There was very little going on if we, sh if we stopped all agricultural work. So does that mean, and here's the question, if we're going to implement Shemitah really in the modern age, would that mean shutting down all non-essential production for a year? It's a question. Even I don't, a stop farmer later. Right, saying. meaning mm -hmm. high-tech. Like, meaning we would just like take a year off. Kind of like the COVID year, sort of. Ish, 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 yeah. Um, meaning, I mean, so we had a COVID year, which might have been like a sabbatical for a lot of people. But, but these are real questions. So again, I don't claim to have the answers to all this, but I'm interested in us having a collective conversation over what a Hebrew civilization looks like in the 21st century. Because I do believe that we came back to life after 2,000 years in order to build that. And I do believe that what we ultimately build when we get it right is going to be something that inspires humanity and actually changes the world. So you think part of the reason people might be scared to have that conversation is because they picture people being thrown off rooftops and that kind of thing, like death penalty being imposed, let's say, people breaking Shabbat, and then people mm -hmm. just, I don't want to talk about that, that's too scary and forget it. I mean, I think that's like the media depiction, the, the okay. media depiction. Of, but again, I don't know if the conversation starts with halachic state, but we definitely, put it this way, halachic state might have a lot of baggage, that concept might have a lot of baggage. I'm interested in a state that expresses our people's identity and values in its policies and in its institutions. So, you know, Shabbat as a class issue is a good example. Um, you know, Shemitah as having socioeconomic ramifications, uh, banks not charging interest. I, I also think our, you know, defense industry should not be selling weapons to human rights violators abroad. Like these are all, you know, th these are all questions about our identity. And um, so I think that our identity and our values should be expressed. And the way I, you know, envision the Jewish character of our state when we finally get it right is a Jewish character that's a lot softer yet deeper than the Jewish character of our state right now. Like I'd say right now, Israel is like a European-style nation-state with Jewish decorations. And those Jewish decorations are way too Jewish for the non-Jews in our country. And they're not Jewish enough for the Haredim. Mm. Like, right? So, I, I, and I, I think instead of a shallow, hard Jewish character, I think our country can have a soft and deep Jewish character that every Haredi child would recognize as Jewish, like he would see the Jewishness in every policy and institution, and non-Jews would barely notice it's Jewish because they just, you know, see a well-run country where they're given inclusion and equality. Regarding banks charging interest, because I remember hearing this a while ago, mm -hmm. that there is a, they argue some loophole, and okay. I, I don't know if uh, familiar with that, but how do, I mean, there are ways that people do these type of things and make business deals and they take a loan and they charge interest but they do a roundabout way. You'd like to get rid of that idea. Well, I, I think, again, for me, it's not necessarily about what we do. Um, I mean, we can. those are important conversations to ultimately have and eventually we're going to have to figure out what the policies should be. But I think the conversation should really begin with the values being expressed. Okay. So, you know, I understand that... When a lot of these loopholes came into being, we were in a very different situation, right? And uh, we were a much more vulnerable community here, um, economically, uh, militarily, right? Um, today, I think we're not in as vulnerable a situation, so we could think about, like, what is ideal? What is best? And that's where I'd like to focus. Like, what do we actually want if we're not concerned about, uh, you know, about this project failing, then what is the ideal? Like, what should really be expressed through the policies and institutions of the state? So, so a loophole might have been necessary at one point, but ultimately what the loophole does, it allows the, the banks or the lenders or whatever 
to function in a way that were meant not to function because of the human cost, you know, because of what it does to people. And I think that eventually the ideal is to get to a point where we're not interested in loopholes, we're interested... I mean, for me also, this, is, this might just be the way I relate to mitzvot in general. Like, the way I relate to mitzvot are, you know, an opportunity to express my soul, an opportunity to really, you know, behave according to the divine ideal and, uh, and to express the divine ideal through the finite vehicles that we call halakha, that we call the mitzvot. So, uh, so I ultimately, what I'd like to see is a state that uh, a country or some kind, whatever we call it, kingdom, I don't know, whatever, whatever you want to call it, that expresses a divine ideal in every sphere of human behavior, from sanitation and uh, social services to diplomacy and, you know, the judiciary, even warfare if necessary, but like everything is an expression of Kedusha. Because there are ways that a person could do the mitzvot with loopholes and technically do it, but not really ideally do them. Like with Shabbat, if a person wanted to have a little bit of bread, and that's it, well, I did the Surah Shabbat according mm. to halacha, but that's not really the intention. You're saying that... Right, I'm, I'm saying we want to we do things uh, mahadran. Like we, we, want, we want to do things in a way that we feel like we're really expressing our souls in this world. That's what it's worth. For me, the Torah is just an external instruct. Well, f- first of all, it's our soulmate, you know, like the land of Israel is our soulmate. But it's also an external instruction manual for how to live according to my soul. Meaning the Avot, our, our ancestors, our patriarchs and matriarchs, they lived the Torah without the book. Right? They just lived Torah. Right? Like Avraham ate matzah on Pesach. Right. right? Before we left Egypt. Before right. we even went to Egypt. So they didn't need the book. To, they were just healthy enough to live their internal natures. I want to live my internal nature. And the best means I have for doing that is the Torah. Okay, this is the Ari Lewis Show here on Israel Sports News Radio. It's also, of course, uh, on YouTube as well, hopefully. The Nation of Israel YouTube page. I want to talk about a concept of translation. Because, again, depending on a person's approach to the mm-hmm. Galut... You could look at translation as a bad thing or a good thing. Of course, initially, the 8th of Tevet was a fast day because the Torah is translated in Greek. Mm-hmm. But as you see, we're speaking English right now. It's still the world's language. Parties are speaking English, so people worldwide can uh, learn these values we're talking about and get some uh, more knowledge about Israel. What is your particular view about translation? Is it a point where since it's out there, we should mm-hmm. just kind of roll with it? Or should we try to move away with it? That would be more an incident idea, but I want to get your thoughts on it. I, I think it depends on which. I think there are some that are actually conceptually problematic. Okay. A big one is God, right? When we think of God... It's you a know, German word, right? Hey, right, and it's a very Christian concept. Right. Um, what we, you know, we have a relationship with a creator uh, that we call... I don't want to spell his name, right. but Yud and then Hey and then Vav and then Hey, right. uh, which is a combination of three words, was, is, and will be. Right. So we basically have this ultimate timeless reality without end that creates all and is the author of history and has a unique relationship with us and, uh, you know, and gives us a Torah. And I think it's, uh, it's, it does a disservice to that relationship and that concept of when we import this word God, which is, I think, ca- carries a lot of Christian baggage. Mm. You know, people get this uh, image of an invisible, all-powerful giant, you know, sometimes with a beard. Long white beard. Right? right. And that's not, you know, and, and that's not healthy. I, I think we need to uh, understand that we're really talking about the, the source of all, the soul of all souls, the, uh, the infinite whole that we're all a part of. Um, much more of a panentheist perspective maybe than a monotheistic perspective. You know, he's not separate from us. We're all expressions of him. And, and ultimately, I think, you know, the purpose of history, the, the goal of all this is to bring all of creation to the awareness that we're all one, that we're all expressions of that infinite whole, that timeless ultimate reality. And that uh, the more we know ourselves, not, it's not for the purpose of really even knowing him, it's to know ourselves, um, to fully live ourselves, to fully, express, to, to fully express our souls in this world, in this life, and to feel like we're actually doing what we were put into this world to do. Um, and, uh, and to realize that we're really all connected at the source and, and that we want to bring humanity th- to that awareness. And of course, uh, the way to do that is really through the unique story of the children of Israel, right? The prophet Yeshua says, like this nation have I created um, to sing my praise. Well, sing my praise doesn't mean we're going to write songs and, and sing about the creator, but rather the, the story of our people um, 
just because it's such an incredible, phenomenal story, uh, by you know, just by looking at that story, by really thinking about examining that story, trying to understand the story of Israel uh, through all of the trials and tribulations and downs and ups and, you know, destructions and overcoming and comebacks, the whole thing um, really will bring people to the awareness that there is an author to the story and a purpose to the story and that, and that uh, through the understanding that there is that there is a purpose and an author and a goal to human history uh, will also come to the awareness that we're really all one. Well, let's say translation in terms of, like, in this country, the main language is modern Hebrew. I like to point that out. Ben mm -hmm. uh, Yehuda created Elizabeth Ben Yehuda about 120 years ago, approximately. And that's not really authentic Hebrew. I, I is it? Say. I don't know. I think it is. I think that's what Amishel speaks. And I think that, look, is, uh, is modern English the same language as Shakespearean English? I'd say it's different. Well, it's a language has evolved. Maybe. I mean, we're okay. we are, our civilization is thousands of years old, and I think uh, languages evolve, and and in some t you know in some ways maybe more positive than others. But I think that put it this way: I, I think that if one of our ancestors from the biblical period were to come here in a time machine um, with his biblical Hebrew. You know, he, people might think he's a little weird, but he'd probably be able to get by and communicate. But in regards to the influence of colonization, that has had effect on modern Hebrew, because there's words in there that are mm -hmm. clearly French or German or English. Okay, except. well, we had also Aramaic words. I mean, that's not a new thing, but yeah, I mean, we had, right. But I don't, I don't have so much a problem with that. I think what you mentioned earlier, these like English, I'll give you another English word that's really problematic, conversion. Or convert. You know, usually, you know, for thousands of years, we have a, a concept of giur, where a person who's not one of us, a person who's not a descendant of the tribes of Israel, wants to join the people of Israel, and there's been this ritual process that he or she undergoes in order to become a Hebrew, which, from a Kabbalistic perspective, means receiving a piece of our collective soul, ultimately. Mm. Like, like it's an internal transformation. And um, when we say, and, and it's joining a people, not joining a religion. It's not like becoming a Muslim or becoming a Christian. Becoming a Jew is a whole different, it, it, it requires uh, a, a transformation to the point that we consider that person to be now a, a son or a daughter of Avraham and Sarah. Hmm. And I think the word conversion implies just joining a religion. So it's a problematic. Another one is prayer, by the way. Like lehit palel is not the Christian concept of prayer. And I think we, a lot of these words, like you said before, a lot of these English translations of Hebrew concepts can trip us up. So it's important. I think, look, we, we can use English and, and we can teach in English. And I think there's a, a very large audience that needs to be taught in English. Um, but I think it's also important to clarify that some of these words don't mean what you think they mean. Hmm. Okay. And that's part of the generational win. There's a lot of people from from the Galut, they come to Israel, they're used to the native languages, that's their understanding. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, nullifying comments for Pesach mm -hmm. is preferred to do it in the person's native language. There's, there's a couple of examples, once it gets into Jewish law, that, that we use it. Mm -hmm. uh, Rosh Hashanah is going to have some tefillot that are not even in Aramaic and different reasons, so it's, it's interesting how it, it comes into our, our culture and our mm -hmm. religious practices. Okay, this is the Ari Lewis Show here on Israel Sports and News Radio, also on the YouTube channel, hopefully, the Nation of Israel, of course, we'll see what happens with that. Let's talk about the concept of uh, colonization effects on Israel in terms of the political landscape, this structure we have in politics is uh, not, I mentioned this before, it is not necessarily Jewish or indigenous to Israel. It is a concept that apparently came from England and we're still using it. Uh, give us your thoughts about that. Aspect. The parliamentary system. Yes. Right, this is not only unique to us. I think if you look at India, for example, they're also using a British political system that just doesn't really work for their culture or identity. And that's true with us as well. We just had four elections in two years. Um, I might be one of the rare individuals who wants a fifth, mm. uh, but it, part of it is because we don't have a political system that really fits our identity properly. Uh, and even within that political system, I think there are often measures taken, like for example, when, um, when politicians, usually from larger parties, want to raise the uh, electoral threshold um, to the point, you know, when I moved here, there were Knesset members, there, there were parties in our Knesset that had one seat. Right. when I moved here. Yeah. Now, to get into Knesset, you need four seats. You need enough votes for four seats worth of votes in order to get into Knesset. 
Now, if you say that part of our identity, part of our culture, you know, is two Jews, three opinions, mm. then if we're going to have a parliamentary system, it should have lots of small ideological parties. That would be expressive of our identity, right? We need a system that's expressive of our identity for it to work. And this kind of attempt, especially by the larger parties, to kind of inch closer and closer to kind of these like big tent, <clears throat> like almost like a, an American-style two-party system, I think is really problematic and dangerous and undemocratic. Although I'd also argue that most political systems are always struggling between um, the values of democracy and efficiency. Right, that's what you mentioned last week. Right. right. The, the dictator is very efficient, but right. it's not democratic. Right, right, right. And, and uh, you know, so I would, I would favor uh, for Israel a uh, participatory democracy based on the Captains of Ten model that was, that was actually also introduced to us from the outside. Meaning there are outside influences that are good. Meaning when we left Egypt, we left with gold. Uh, now usually in the Torah, gold as opposed to silver, silver usually means wealth, like material wealth. But gold often, when the Torah speaks of gold, it usually refers to like cultural values and, um, and ideas and, uh, when, and ideals. And when we left Egypt, we left with gold. Some of that gold went to contribute to the Mishkan and some of that gold went to contribute to the golden calf. Now, the way I understand that, you know, and even Rashi, when he talks about this concept of amskula, he refers to Israel as like this like treasure trove that goes around the world collecting treasures, ideas, you know, wisdoms from different nations, like an exile, and eventually will come back. So there's a value to some of the foreign ideas we pick up, but we have to sift. And the sifting mechanism has to be our identity. So as long as we're strong in our identity, if we understand our own story deeply, then I think we'll have the filtration mechanism to know what foreign influences are the Mishkan and what foreign influences are the golden calf. Uh, but it's not, they're not all bad or all good. Some are conducive to us being able to fulfill our, our role in history and some are not. And some get in the way. So we have to be able to know. Uh, but Yitro, uh, who is from Midian, introduces this political structure to us of captains of ten, hundreds, thousands, etc., that we seem to use from then on. And I think we can create here a, a participatory democracy along the lines of that model, meaning that, um, let's say, on my mountain, ten guys get together every Sunday night and meet about uh, everything from uh, road safety, schools, education, transportation, you know, defense, diplomacy, and uh, choose one guy, let's say in this case it's me, uh, and I'm a captain of 10. That means I go to a second meeting Monday night with nine other captains of 10s from mm. nine other neighborhoods or in the area or mountaintops or whatever, and let's say we have the same conversations and everybody's representing their nine guys from their neighborhood, and then you have a captain of hundreds, that he goes to a meeting Tuesday night with nine other captains of hundreds, right? And then somebody becomes captain of thousands, and then somebody goes into Knesset. And every week, you can recall your captain. He can stay a member of your group, but he's no longer your representative if he doesn't do what you sent him to Parliament to do. That would be a participatory democracy, which involves everybody. Meaning, for me, democracy means empowering people to be able to influence the structures they live under. That's what's important to me. I don't care about votes. I don't care about election days. In many cases, voting becomes an illusion of democracy in systems that aren't really democratic at all. Because if you're voting uh, for one of two people who are essentially the same person with the same background, same education, okay, maybe they're, they, they have differences of opinions on distraction issues. But for the most part, they're coming from the same backgrounds, they're getting their campaign funding from the same corporations and lobbyists, and uh, no matter who wins, he's going to be much more beholden to the corporations that funded his campaign than he will be to the people who voted for him. And everybody else has to shut their mouths for four years until it's time to vote again, and by then you have the corporations and lobbyists you know, uh, giving chat, writing checks to, um, to you know to, to everybody to get their face on billboards and their name on the radio, etc. So I would rather have a system where anybody who's a decision maker has to be involved on a weekly basis. You don't have to be involved. You could stay home. You can watch TV. You could smoke a joint. You could hang out with your kid. Whatever you want to do. But if you're going to be part of the system, you're showing up 
and you're discussing everything. So you eliminate what we call the soft voter. You eliminate the uneducated voter who's just told he has a civic duty to vote for the guy with the best hair. Mm. And you end up with a lot of really educated people who are discussing the most pressing issues of our society on a weekly basis and coming to informed decisions and sending representatives to parliament and the next week having the ability to recall those representatives if they didn't do what they're sent to do and replacing them with somebody else around the table. Uh, I think that would be a much more democratic system and I think a country as small as Israel could actually be a good place to really experiment with that model. You know, it's interesting you bring up the concept of the two political system party party system in America, and it's mm-hmm. basically the same thing. Because I was uh, covering a protest in 2003, mm-hmm. anti-war protest, Gulf War, etc. And uh, you know, I said it was kind of a hippie gentleman type of guy. I said, "Look, this is your fault." He's like, "What do you mean? You voted for Ralph Nader, and if you didn't vote for Ralph Nader, Gore would have won, and then there wouldn't be a war." And he said, "That's not true. There still would have been a war." He might be right. Yeah, and it's interesting because I tend to think things do go in patterns, especially uh, with leadership. Uh, there is a concept that the, the leader has less of a free will concept, mm. we, we say, right. but I think that might be a concept that there's things in patterns. So uh, is that kind of what you're talking about, where people say, oh, if we would have voted him, we wouldn't have the war, maybe we would have anyway. Mm-hmm. Right, I agree. And we also, in regards to the captains of tens, was that, in your opinion, what the House of Representatives was trying to do? I don't know. They, okay. what, they're, you know what they were trying to do is a good question for them. I'm concerned about here. And even, by, by the way, even if we find that a lot of the political structures or ideas of Western civilization are at some point uh, influenced by the ancient Hebrews, which you have. Yeah, you, sure. You have certainly many examples of this. Um, still, I don't think we're looking to a, like copy, copy, a copy, a copy of our right. own thing. Right, okay. I think ultimately we want to really think about what what our authentic thing is that we can... We, we might need to update it to the 21st century, but I don't think we should just be copying a copy of our thing. Right, there's a movie uh, called Multiplicity where they, uh, they have a character that copies itself four times, and by the time they get the fourth, it's just not so good. It's so, like a game of telephone. Yeah, right. it ends up being uh, less authentic, less mm-hmm. pure, right? Right. Uh, again, this is the Ari Lewis Show here on Israel Sports and News Radio, also on the Nation of Israel YouTube channel as well, and uh, Rumble as well. Hope we're joining the uh, program this evening. So let's talk about Tishma, of course, I mentioned a couple of days away. Uh, what would be your approach at this point in the sense that the Beit HaMikdash is not up, but a good portion of world juries in Israel, approximately, I think it's over 40%, so it's not where we want it to be, but certainly better than things were uh, 80 years ago, obviously. Mm-hmm. So your thoughts on the approach of Tisha B'Av coming up a couple of days? Uh, well, I think for me, Tisha B'Av and the nine days and the three weeks approaching, um, and it just keeps intensifying as you get closer, um, is a good time for two things. Number one, to focus on what's missing. Right? Like, you know, we, most of the year, we appreciate the fact that we've come back to our land, we've regained independence, we've revived our language, um, our, I mean, we have many challenges and, and, and many, uh, many things to overcome. But at the same time, compared to much of our history, we're doing pretty good. Uh, better than we have been doing in a long time. Yeah. So I think we can appreciate that and the trajectory seems to be good. But at the same time, there are still things missing. And I think this is a good time of year to focus on what's missing, what's incomplete, what's flawed, what we want to change in our society number one. Number two, I think it's a good time to learn the story of our fight for freedom against the Roman Empire. And to and this is an important story because for much of our history, um, the, the heroes of the story, the Judean freedom movement, um, whether it's the Sicarii or the Zealots or you know, what we'll call the broader Zealot movement or the Fourth Philosophy, were essentially vilified. They were vilified by Josephus uh, in his writings, and they were even vilified by our Chachamim in the Talmud, or many of them, not all, but, but many of the Chachamim, um, because really after that war, after Jerusalem was destroyed and the Romans won, there was a debate going on within the empire. You know, people in uh, Antioch and Alexandria were lobbying for like, wholesale punishment of the Jews throughout the empire. And I think both Josephus and the rabbis had an interest in trying to convince the Romans that this was not a conflict between Rome and Jerusalem. This was a situation of a fanatical minority 
picking a fight with the Roman Empire and victimizing the Jews at the same time. That was kind of the way it was framed in order to kind of get the Jews off the hook hmm. after the war had ended. And, um, you know, I, I think both Josephus and the rabbis wanted the Romans to make a very clear separation between the Jewish people and the Zealot movement, which I don't think really exists. That separation wasn't, it's true, because I think on the one hand, even Josephus tells us that in the first century, uh, the Zealot philosophy, the fourth philosophy, was the most popular philosophy in all of Judea, especially among the youth. He says there's no difference between the Pharisee movement and the Zealot movement, except for the fact that the Zealots believe that we have a Torah obligation to conquer the land of Israel, to free it from Roman rule, and to maintain uh, Jewish independence, and to accept Roman rule in our land is, an, is idolatry. Hmm. And uh, therefore, and that is, that's the position of the Ramban, um, certainly in his, uh, in his commentary, a supplement to the Rambam's Sefer Mitzvot. Um, that's also the initial Aruch in uh, Evan Ezer Simen Ayan Hay, uh, the Pitchei Tshuva there, I think it's Vav, says all the Rishonim and all the Achronim hold by the Ramban on this issue, that it's a mitzvah in every generation to liberate our land, to establish Jewish independence, and to not let any of it fall into, into foreign hands. Uh, so the Zealot position is the, and, and certainly I think the, um, our ancestors in the time of Tanakh held this way. Um, but for some reason, we, because the Zealot movement ultimately lost, and I'm not saying it was a perfect movement, they definitely made mistakes, as all of our heroes have made mistakes. Um, it, it was an imperfect movement, uh, but because they lost, they, were, um, they didn't get to really write their own history. They didn't get to write their own story. The story was written about them by political opponents, by the Romans, by Josephus, and, and by Rabbanim, who had an interest in protecting us, like for good reason, protecting us from the wrath of the Roman Empire, which was considerable. But now that we're back, and now that we're free, I think we have an obligation to really learn that story more deeply and to understand uh, what they were fighting for, what they were fighting against. Uh, it wasn't only an anti-colonial uh, struggle or anti-imperial struggle, it was also a class struggle, meaning, you know, Shimon Bar Giora, who the Romans recognized ultimately as the leader of the Judean revolt, he freed the slaves and, um, and wiped out debts, and even the, the zealot movement in Jerusalem, which is mostly like the lower class Kohanim, you know, burned down the uh, hall of debts, like to alleviate everybody's debt. Um, this, but this was, uh, but, but I, I would think we need to look at the zealot movement as a very important link in, in a chain of many Jewish liberation movements that ultimately uh, culminated with the fighters for the freedom of Israel who forced the British to leave our land. And now we have to ask ourselves, like, what are the goals of Jewish history moving forward? Meaning, we've come back to a situation of power, which we haven't had in thousands of years. Um, we have to figure out what that looks like. Uh, how to use power, how to be comfortable with power, not to abuse it, and at the same time, not to be afraid of using it. Uh, and I think that a lot of the friction, political friction in Israeli society comes down to those who want to, quote-unquote, abuse it versus those who are afraid to touch it at all. Mm. I think we have to be comfortable with power. And we have to ask ourselves, what are the goals of Jewish history? Uh, what's already been achieved? What's left to accomplish? What's standing in the way? And what can we do to be characters in the story of smashing those obstacles and actually advancing Jewish history forward. So throughout our history, it's almost always a radical minority of Jews who advance our people's story forward. Um, the Zealots are a good example, the Maccabim were a good example, the Lechi was a good example, but I would say Bar Kochba and Rabbi Kiva certainly attempted, uh, but I would argue that but a lot of us don't learn that between Bar Kochba and Herzl, there were many Jewish liberation movements that attempted to advance our people's story forward that failed. They were links in the chain, but they failed to taste victory themselves. Um, but the more we learn about these movements and the more we identify with these movements, I think the more we'll be able to uh, live those kinds of lives and actually be the type of Jews who get to advance our people's story forward. But how do we balance the concept of avoiding foreign influence, and then, as you said earlier, the concept of we take gold from the Egyptians that we could get good things out of it? How do we do that balance? Well, the balance is through knowing our identity. The, okay. the, the, our identity um, is the filtration mechanism. Or, I would say it this way, learning emunah. 
you know, we're sitting here in Machon Meir, which is a uh, which is a, a yeshiva in the path of Rav Kook. And one of the most important innovations of Rav Kook uh, in the Beit Midrash was learning emunah be'iyon. Like learning emunah, not just like having emunah as some like fluffy thing, like, you know, but actually learning emunah, developing emunah, learning how to see the world a certain way, learning how to understand uh, the events around us a certain way, uh, learning how to understand Torah a certain way. And I think the more we learn our identity, to understand our identity, and the more we learn emunah, uh, that will be the filtration mechanism that will allow us to sift between the positive gold and the negative gold, the foreign influences that can be conducive to us fulfilling our mission and the foreign influences that could be an obstacle to fulfilling our mission. So there is a way to use foreign influence properly. So. Yeah. Okay. And it's actually interesting because, as I mentioned, there was a fast day set up when the Torah was translated to Greek. But if mm. you apparently look at the eighth page of Megillah, the Torah today can be read in Greek, which mm. is a pretty interesting message that okay. there's a way to use these things uh, properly. Again, this is the Ari Lewis Show here on Israel Sports News Radio, also uploaded to YouTube, hopefully, the uh, Nation of Israel YouTube page. Let's talk about the concept more of foreign influence in terms of goods and services. You know, it's a, uh, you know, I know you're from the United States and me as well, and at least this lifetime, and there was always a taboo for a Jewish person to ride in a German car. There are a lot of Jews like, I'm not riding a German car. Even if they ate bacon, they just did something they wouldn't do. You come, we come to Israel, we get on a bus, it's Mercedes. There's German German cars are, are part mm. of the government and, and uh, it's a very weird situation. So give us your thoughts about that. Is it just, well, that's business. We get a good deal from the mm. Mercedes dealership, so that's what we're going to do, mm. or should we stay away from that? What do you well, think? Well, well, that's an old debate in this country that was decided in the early 50s. Okay. Uh, that, was a, that was a major... Um, that was a major disagreement between Mapai, led by David Ben-Gurion, and Chirut, led by Menachem Begin. Okay. Right? They Let were, me take this. Begin didn't want to use the Mercedes. No, they were right. He, he was actually banned from the Knesset for a period of time because he led riots in the streets against taking reparations from Germany. Wow. But again, this is the early 1950s, meaning, yeah. meaning that to say the wounds were fresh would be an understatement. Yeah. Uh, now, for, for you and I, I, I imagine, I'm 41 years old, I imagine you're somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, we probably grew up at a time, well, I did, you probably did as well, uh, when we knew people who had been through the Holocaust. Yeah. And it was still, it, it wasn't yet history. It was right. still a real thing. Sure. And there was still like, you know, we still heard stories, not just new people. I mean, today, maybe they're, they're you know, geriatric survivors, but when I was growing up, there were people in their 60s, you know, who, who were survivors and who were, had very clear memories and can tell stories. And, and I think that's a different world. I think a, in a world where it's just become history, the taboo on buying German products or riding in German cars is much less. I mean, you know, if we think about all of the, all of the German companies that uh, that benefited materially from the Holocaust. Sure. Whether we're talking about like IBM, right? Well, I don't. Right. Is that I, can you say that? Sorry. Right. IBM. Well, there's also American companies. Sure. That, that, that's another conversation. Right. But w when you think about, uh, although I don't know how many American companies were actually like stuffing the car seats with Jewish hair, yeah. or making lampshades out of Jewish skin, or making bars of soap out of Jewish fat, but they were certainly benefiting materially from the from the Holocaust as well. Uh, you know, but but we're so removed from that today. We're, we're living, you know, the, the people who are growing up today and deciding, Jews who are growing up today and deciding to buy a German car aren't really relating to the Holocaust as something that's like real or relevant, in, meaning it's not the same Germans. Um, Is that a legitimate point? I don't know. Uh, I, it, it's, it's tough. I, I think, um, you know, it, it feels... And maybe this was Begin's point when he opposed the reparations. It feels like we did not receive justice. Something happened to us. Uh, another nation, uh, or maybe collection of nations, uh, perpetrated a, a horrendous, horrendous, not just crime, atrocities on us. And um, we like to think we moved on. I mean, certainly we're in a better position today than we were then. Um, radically, uh, but I don't know if we can, I, you know, li like for example, the Eichmann trial, when Adolf Eichmann was kidnapped by the Mossad and brought to stand trial in Jerusalem, that was a very symbolic moment for our people. Sure. But it wasn't justice. 
You know, well, how could it be? It's about where six million Jews died. You can't execute them six million times in this world. So right. So so I think that, I, and again, it's not for, for me. This conversation isn't about taking revenge. Although there were attempts right after the war to like poison the German water supply and, and things like that. This for me is not a conversation about taking revenge. This is a conversation for me about being able to overcome our own trauma in order to move on. I think okay. that's important for us. Uh, and it, it, the Holocaust might have been the culmination of a, of a series of traumatic uh, uh, events that we went through. But ultimately, now that we're back here, again, this is part of this post-colonial conversation I think we really need to have, we need to unpack our trauma, especially Ashkenazim. Uh, we, we really need to acknowledge what happened to us, how it affected us, um, you know, in some cases, we're just going to move on with it. In some cases, we're going to try to change what was done to us or put back what was before. You know, these are all fluid conversations that we need to have, but we need to have them. We need to unpack our trauma uh, for our sake, uh, for the sake of the other people living in this country with us, uh, for the sake of our neighbors. Um, and for the sake of future generations. Yeah, and for the sake of future generations. We, we haven't really faced our trauma yet. We haven't really unpacked it. And I think that, you know... The conversation over whether or not to purchase or ride in a, a German car will be a much easier conversation to have once we've unpacked that trauma. And something I want to make clear, you know, my experience, once I got to Israel, I was in Opan, and there were three non-Jewish Germans. And I've had a lot of uh, positive, positive experience with Germans uh, in this country and worldwide. So um, I have very mixed feelings. For example, Henry Ford was known as a huge anti-Semite. Mm -hmm. Then his son apparently sponsored yeshiva somewhere in New York. It's called like the Henry Ford yeshiva. Okay. Like, there, there are things like that that happen where the grandchildren will acknowledge bad things. The grandchildren right. of Nazis will acknowledge that they did wrong and try to do things correctly. So, I, again, IBM now, I'm sure, is a lot different than they were in the 40s. So like I, Disney? Disney. There, you mm -hmm. know, there's different... There's different situations where people can change. I don't, I don't want to sound naive. I don't know if they're changing for sure, if it's fake, it's not, I don't know. But we do believe that people can change. It is right. possible. So, so Germans, in my experience, seem to um, be very adamant about the fact that they've changed. And, right. and there seems to be a lot of uh, breastfeeding over, over what took place during the Second World War. Um, but sometimes it feels like even their... Um, even that, I don't want to say tshuva, even, even that, uh, you know, penitence carries a little bit of um, arrogance and is even a little ethnocentric. You know, sometimes I, I, I experience or I pick up on a little bit of like German superiority in how they're no longer uh, seeing themselves as a master race. Uh, like meaning they've evolved from that. Like they've evolved from it, but no one else has. Oh, I see. You know. Huh. I mean, it's, you know, I was, for example, a couple years ago, I was at the Kotel, and uh, I go there a lot, obviously, and there were a, a couple of non-Jewish uh, Germans that were mm -hmm. asking questions, very respectful, and they asked me, like, can I go up and touch it? Like, very respectful, so... Yeah, no, they're good. Look, first, they're good people everywhere, sure. bad people everywhere, but, but I think part of our problem, it's not even necessarily their problem, part of our problem is we've never had a real... Conversation. We, we haven't had closure. I yes. don't think we've had any closure, and, and I think to a certain extent, you know, uh, we've used the Shoah as a tool, uh, both to, in the United States especially, to keep, you know, young Jews in the fold somehow, to mm. keep them, like, committed to Jewish identity, which I think is a very negative tool, a very problematic tool to use, um, but it became, like, almost like a guilt tool, like, because of the Holocaust, you know, you have to go to Hebrew school, or you have to marry a Jew, or whatever it is, and we've used it as a tool, um, overused it as a tool to gain sympathy uh, from other nations, and I think other nations are sick of that. There's apparently a drinking game where there was a prime minister giving a speech and they said, we're going to drink every time he mentions the Shoah. Mm -hmm. You know, there apparently there is stuff like that that they'll, prime minister will do that to try to get sympathy as you mentioned and that's probably not an angle we want to go with. Right. No, not at this point. Right. right. I think in the 1950s, uh, look, if, if it's the 1950s or 60s or 70s or maybe even 80s and a German diplomat is dictating to us what we should do, especially if it's something that we feel is not in our interest, then I think bringing up the Shoah might be appropriate, especially since we're talking about, we're talking about a time where our national leaders uh, were survivors, and the German national leaders were likely there, you know, 
in some shape Capacity or form. You know. Right. Then it becomes, you know, a relevant history to bring up. Today, I'm not talking about forgetting. I'm not talking about forgiving. We have to unpack. We need closure. But I don't think it should be used cynically as a, uh, as a political tool. And or even a, as an educational tool. Okay. Meaning in the sense that, obviously, we, got, we need to learn about it, but to not say we need to do certain... Not to use it to guilt children into okay. like being Jews. Like, I think there's... I, look, we're living in one of the most exciting chapters of Jewish history. Like, for the first time in thousands of years, we are back in our land, not as a gas, but as a solid. We have political independence, we have a government, we have an army, we have an economy, we, we have uh, a lot of challenges to overcome. But I think inspiring our youth to be characters in this story and feel empowered to be the thought leaders in overcoming these challenges is a much better way to keep people involved and keep people Jewish than to guilt them about the Holocaust. See, the guilt, uh, it's interesting that you bring that up because there's, uh, there's this analogy of the story where once upon a time, this uh, son comes home mm-hmm. and he, he says to his dad, you know, uh, someone tried to missionize me to become a Christian. And the father was a hardcore atheist. Mm-hmm. And he said, listen to me, son, there's only one God, but we don't believe in him. Mm-hmm. It's this idea of like, well, we're not really pro-Jewish. We're anti not being not Jewish. And it gets very confusing as a child. Well, wait, I should just be Jewish because I'm not Christian. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really work. You can't really just be anti-something all the time. Oh, there's right? something to that. There's something to just rejecting idolatry, even if we're not going to practice our own thing. Okay. But in general, is that long lasting? Something we have to, mm-hmm. those people have to take on more of its fun. Right. Right? Uh, ideally. I mean, again, it, it's for me, look, again, like I said, the mitzvot for me are a way to really express my soul in this world. Like through the character that I play, Yudah Kohen, I'm expressing my inner self. I'm expressing my soul through the mitzvot. Uh, I want that for other people as well. I think it's a good feeling, especially when you come with that approach. Uh, but at the very least, don't betray your soul. You know, don't stain your soul. And obviously embracing Christianity would be a pretty, pretty destructive stain on the soul for a jewish soul yeah maybe even a non-jewish soul all right well he said that on me uh, we, we have a lot of christian fans i mean but uh obviously we express we appreciate your special support of you well we can introduce them to the seven noahide laws there you go yeah all right so we'll you know we can put a link actually in the, in the section to that uh again this is Ari lewis show here on israel sports news radio also on the youtube channel uh, hopefully the nation of israel youtube page so let us discuss you know you were mentioning this this concept of being empowered and certain things that we need to do Jewish values. One of the things I bring up a lot is we're not doing such a good job in using the land that we have. I'm talking about the borders that we have right now, the state of Israel. My guess at the top of my head is maybe we use 20% of the land. I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but it is just not really such a great situation. And for both Jews and non-Jews, there's plenty of land as now for, for 9 million people to live very comfortably here. Mm-hmm. And that's not, Jerusalem's very crowded, Tel Aviv's very crowded, mm-hmm. Tel Aviv's, they're both very expensive cities. So uh, your thoughts on how we can do more land expansion in a proper way where, you know, we, we're doing right with things. I, I'm, I'm afraid I don't have any, uh, any novel opinions on this. Like, I, I, haven't, I, I haven't really uh, struggled with the issue. Okay. So, um, I mean, if you want to send me some links, things to read, I'm happy to... I mean, in general, I think that there's a lot of, unde- like you said, a lot of undeveloped land. And uh, w- one thing I will say is as long as we're functioning within a two-state paradigm um, and we think that everything is like a fight over what's going to be ours and what's not going to be ours, we're going appro- to politicize land issues and approach them in ways that might actually not be in our long-term interest. So I think the first thing we need to do is accept, acknowledge that the two-state thing is over. That's not happening. Like, we're not, we're not going to divide this land. And once we know that this is going to be one land, then we can approach these things uh, we, in a way that is more conducive with the ideal, with, with our long-term interests and the kind of society we want to create and not this, like, uh, kind of narrow-minded game over who's going to have what if the land gets divided. Because in that situation, you're saying that we're, it's kind of like it's hard to make a commitment if, you do, if you're not sure the land's going to stay. Is, is it that kind of idea? Uh, that and the fact that we, look, one thing I like about living in the Shtachim, in, in Judea, is how underdeveloped it is. Mm. Uh, you know, you see nature everywhere. Uh, whereas, you know, when you go into the Merkaz, everything seems to be developed, uh, overdeveloped sometimes. 
and, and um, so I think there's something too, just like not conquering nature, working with nature. Because hmm. like the way Jerusalem is now, basically they're building up. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's uh, I won't say it's Manhattan, but you know it's get, it's closer to Manhattan than it was ten years ago. And Tel Aviv tries to be a mini Manhattan. Miami. Miami, right, that kind of thing, right. The humidity and the beach and that kind of stuff, and then they're not really working nature. You know, we were at, uh, we did an interview last night where we were in the Shachim, and it was like, wow, it was it was nostalgia. You know, right. grew up in the suburbs. You hear the crickets it. at night, yeah. you see the stars in the sky. Nice breeze, and uh, right. not the Jerusalem is not a great breeze as well, but so there's the idea of working with nature, you think right. would be a lot more helpful. Right, and reconnecting to it. Part of, you know, part of this project is also learning how to reconnect to our identity. We're going to have to wrap up, by the way. Um, re reconnect to our identity, our connection to the land. It doesn't mean everybody has to become a farmer or a shepherd. Right. But, uh, but, we, but, it's, but we should be able to appreciate and connect to nature. Certainly think about our environment because, you know, the planet is in trouble. And uh, I think there's a, there are a lot of measures we can be taking as individuals and certainly as a collective to, um, to, to at least slow down um, the, the, the destruction we're reaping on the planet. Um, and, uh, and I think Israelis are, are actually becoming more and more conscious of, of such issues, so that's good. All right, again, this has been another episode of the Ari Lewis Show here on Israel Sports and News Radio, also on the YouTube page, The Nation of Israel. Our guest this evening has been Yehuda Cohen, who's a lecturer at Mahon Meir and also the founder of Vision. And they can find Vision, vision.org? There's a visionmovement.org and visionmag.org. That's our magazine. The, the movement's official website is visionmovement.org, and the magazine is visionmag.org. All right. Well, we hope everyone's enjoyed this episode. God bless. Good night. <laughs>